number of years ago, I was hiking in Peru in the Andean Mountains. And one evening as we were coming into our base camp, we were running quite a bit late. And it became dark very quickly. And honestly, I was quite afraid. Unknown country in the pitch black. And for the last leg of the trip, I had been staring mostly at my feet. So pitch black, I've got this little headlamp on with my head looking down at my feet, trying to make sure that I didn't trip on a rock or a rogue branch and roll my ankle. But as we came out of the trees and into the clearing, we had to hike a small hill in order to reach our base camp. And as we approached this base camp, my eyes went from my feet up towards the sky. And for all of the beautiful things that I saw in Peru, I saw one of the most beautiful things of all, something that we see here every night, the stars. The sky was ablaze with stars. Stars that we couldn't even see in some of these rural Peruvian villages. And the reasons we could see the stars with such brightness and vividness and clarity was first because of the altitude and how high we were in the mountains, and second, because of the darkness. In uh, the rural Andean mountains, there wasn't a lot of light pollution. And so the sky felt like it was ablaze with stars. That it was actually because of the darkness that helped us to see the vividness and the beauty of the light of the stars. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent literally means arrival. And for the next number of weeks, the church looks forward to the coming arrival of Jesus on Christmas morning, on Christmas Day. And as such, we are in a new sermon series through Advent called Why the Family Tree of Jesus Matters. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to be paying attention to Jesus' family tree, his genealogy as found in Matthew's gospel. And what we'll see is there are five women who are named in Jesus' family genealogy, in his family tree. And we're going to pay attention to those five women and the ways that they tell us something about Jesus' own arrival. Namely, how it points us towards hope, peace, love, joy, and fulfillment. And today we're going to look at the first of those five women, namely Tamar, and the way that her story, in connection with Jesus' story, points us that God and Jesus longs to bring hope in some of our darkest situations, that it's actually in our darkness that the light and the beauty and vividness of God's hope can shine through. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel right at the very beginning. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 together. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that Matthew, who knew you, who was one of your disciples, 
in his wisdom and in your wisdom, chose to include Tamar in your family tree. And I pray that as we listen to you speaking to us today through this passage and through our lives, that we would see the ways that you are pointing us towards the great hope that even in our darkest places, that you long for the light of your hope to burst forth. So I pray that you would prepare our, our hearts and our lives to hear and to receive what you have for us today. Amen. Genealogies aren't exactly exciting reading, are they? Anybody who has waded through chapters of genealogies in the Old Testament knows this to be true. Waiting through day after day of Bible reading plans saying, Oh Lord, when will this end? Genealogies aren't exactly fun reading. And yet Matthew has chosen to begin his gospel about Jesus with a genealogy. Why would Matthew choose to open up his gospel with a genealogy? I think part of the reason is that family matters. Family matters not just because it happened in the past, but because it says something about our present. When Sabine and I were in Scotland a number of weeks ago, we were visiting some good friends in Edinburgh. And while we were there, because we love history and old buildings, we had an opportunity to visit Edinburgh Castle. While walking through the castle, we saw that not only did it have lots of information about the building itself, but about the people who lived there. You could see family genealogies and family portraits lining all of the hallways and, and rooms throughout the building. And while we were doing this self-tour through Edinburgh Castle, we learned that a part of the reason that these genealogies and family portraits were important is, in one part, the legitimacy for some of these rulers and kings of their right to rule. But on the other hand, that their family histories and backgrounds say something about their present, say something about who they are. They don't determine who they are, but they speak into the present. They speak into who they are. And I think that genealogies didn't just matter in Jesus' time or for ancient kings and royalty, but I think they still matter for us today. For some of you who have maybe opened up an Ancestry.com page and looked up your own family history, or who have subscribed to a 23andMe genetic background package, there's a rise of people wanting to learn more about their genetic and family background because for many of us, not only do we feel like our background matters, but because it says something about who we are. Again, it doesn't determine who we are, but it offers some kind of insight into who we are. And I think this is why Matthew has chosen to open up his gospel with the genealogy, with the family tree of Jesus. That this family tree of Jesus offers some insight into what it means for Jesus to arrive. And so, for the next five weeks, we're going to pay attention to Jesus' genealogy, in particular the five women who are named there. In ancient genealogies, women were almost never named. And so for Matthew to name five women would have stood out like a lighthouse in the middle of the dark, drawing us, begging us to ask more 
Why? Begging us to pay attention to those five women. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to do that. We're going to pay attention to these five women and how each of them says something about what it means, offers insight into what it means for Jesus to arrive. And today we're going to look at the first of them, the first woman named in Jesus' family tree, namely Tamar. And we will see how the story of Tamar points to the hope of God and the hope of Jesus. Especially for anyone who has experienced exclusion and loss, whose story is filled with sin and brokenness. That's actually in our darkest places that God seeks to burst forth the light of his hope. Now, before I unpack a bit more of Tamar's story, I want to preempt a little bit. This is kind of a messed up story. It's full of brokenness. It's filled with sin. And so I I think it's important to name that as we go in. Tamar's story begins with a marriage. Begins with her marriage to Ur, E-R, Ur. Ur is the oldest son of Judah, and Judah is the great-grandson of Abraham. So Ur is the great-great-grandson of Abraham. And like most weddings, I'm sure Tamar was filled with hope, filled with light, filled with joy, looking to her future and seeing good things are coming. I remember my wedding day. I was filled with hope for the future, filled with the anticipation of good things to come. But soon for Tamar, her story takes a turn. And it goes from a place of joy and anticipation to a place of loss. And we're told that her husband, Ur, dies due to his wickedness. We don't know if this wickedness was directed towards Tamar or God or some other way, but we're told that he dies. And then, Tamar, as was the cultural practice of the day, very strange for us, But as was the cultural practice of the day, Tamar was given to Ur's younger brother, Onan. Again, strange for us, but was a regular practice, cultural practice at the time. Onan also dies due to his wickedness. That Onan was supposed to help Tamar, not only care for her, but help to raise up a family and help deliver children. And he refused to do that. And we're told that due to this reason and perhaps other ones, that Onan also dies. So first husband Ur dies, second husband Onan dies. As would have been the cultural practice, Sheila, the third son, should have been given to Tamar. But Sheila was quite young, and at this point, Judah, Tamar's father-in-law, becomes a bit superstitious, thinking that Tamar has become a bad luck charm. And so he decides to send Tamar out of the house to live as a widow in their parents' home. Now, some of you may be thinking, that sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? Someone who has experienced such loss and difficulty to go and live with your family. But actually for Tamar, it put her in a very, very desperate and dark and hopeless situation. That as long as she was in Judah's household, there was a responsibility and an obligation for him and for their family to provide for her, to provide for some of her physical and personal needs, but also to help her to raise up a family and provide children. And for 
Judah to send Tamar away in a way is saying, out of sight, out of mind. Let's get her out of the house, maybe renege on the responsibility that we have for her. And as we will find out later, in fact, Judah had no anticipation of giving his youngest son, Sheila, to Tamar. But Tamar was also in a difficult situation because she was not only a widow and she couldn't inherit any property or wealth, but because she didn't have children. Children were the ancient retirement plan in the world. When you were too old to work for yourselves, those younger kids worked for you. They provided for you. And so not only when her parents passed away would she be unable to inherit the wealth and the possessions of the family, but she didn't have children to provide for her in the future. Women were considered the most vulnerable people in the ancient world. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford scholar and writer of the Chronicle of Narnia series, says this about hope. Hope is looking to the future and seeing that there are far, far better things ahead than the ones that we leave behind. As Tamar looked into the future, the only things that she saw were despair and death. She was hopeless, but longing for hope, longing to look into her future and to say better things are coming. And so Tamar comes up with a plan. She comes up with a pretty desperate plan, as we'll read here in just a second. And if you think that the story is complicated and interesting and kind of strange so far, it's about to get a whole lot more interesting. In fact, this passage is on a top 10 list of passages that preachers don't want to preach. <laughs> Genesis 38, beginning at verse 13. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. Yes, you heard right. <laughs> that is in the Bible. Let me unpack this a little bit for you. Let me actually reiterate what we heard. Tamar was given to Ur, dies due to his wickedness. Tamar given to Onan, dies due to his wickedness. Tamar, supposed to be given to the younger son, Sheila, Judah's superstitious, thinking Sheila's going to die too, sends Tamar off to live as a widow. Really dark situation. In her dark and desperate and hopeless situation, Tamar dresses up as a sex trade worker, goes to the street corner, knowing that her father-in-law, Judah, is going to be heading in that direction. And Judah, the great-grandson of Abraham sleeps with a sex trade worker who ends up being his daughter-in-law. Yes, that is in the Bible, friends. <laughs> As one of my friends and colleagues here at Tenth said, 
This feels way more like a Jerry Springer episode than a Bible story, hey? Yes, this is in our Bibles. And I think at this point, it's important to say something about how to read the Bible, how to read ancient scriptures. Sometimes the Bible is prescriptive, and sometimes it is descriptive. Sometimes the Bible is prescriptive. It's prescribing something for us. It's teaching us. It's telling us to do something. The Ten Commandments or the teachings of Jesus would be good examples of this. And sometimes it is simply describing what happened. And in describing what happened, it's inviting us to pay attention to what God is doing in the midst of this story. This is the latter. If we read this story looking for moral exemplars, people that we can lift up, if we're looking for a moral of the story, we are not going to find those friends. But if we pay attention to what is happening in the story and we listen to what God is doing in this space, what I think we will see is that God is not afraid of the darkness. God is not afraid of broken and sinful and complex and strange stories, both in Genesis or in our lives either. God is not afraid of our darkest, most complicated, broken and sinful spaces, but in fact, it's in the darkest places of our lives that he seeks seeks for the light of his hope to burst forth with vivid clarity and beauty. God is not afraid of the darkness. God is not afraid of the darkness, but seeks to bring his hope into the darkest places, some of the confusing, broken stories of our lives. I remember over 10 years ago being new here to 10th, before I was on staff, and listening to Pastor Ken share a story. He shared a story about a woman who worked as a sex trade worker. And she was in a very dark and desperate situation and was going for a walk through Stanley Park. And as she was walking through Stanley Park, she ran into her pimp and began to pour out her heart to him. And at the end of listening, her pimp said, I can't help you, but you should go to 10th Church. They will help you. And the first time I heard this story, I actually felt pretty conflicted and confused. I was really excited and grateful that someone who was very clearly in a very dark and desperate and hopeless situation was pointed towards 10th and that we were known as a place of healing in the city. I was also a bit confused and didn't know what to make sense of the fact that someone who is complicit in her suffering or likely complicit in her suffering, her pimp, had pointed her to 10th church. I didn't know how to square those things. And as I've been unpacking this story over the years, here's maybe one of the best ways that I think I can make sense of that. God does not only work in the lives and spaces of people who feel like they have their whole lives together and where it makes sense. But God works in the middle of broken, confusing, sinful, and complex stories that he meets us in those places to help us to go from spaces of hopelessness to hope. Do you know the reason that we found out about this woman's story? Because she came. 
She came to 10th. She met people like you who prayed and who she shared her story with. And I'm grateful that 10th was able to be a space where God helped to bring hope and healing in a space of hopelessness. God is not afraid of our darkness. He is not afraid of our most complex and difficult and dark stories. But God seeks to bring hope in the spaces of our darkness. God wants us to acknowledge the darkness in our world and in our lives and in those places to look for hope, to ask God to bring the light of his hope. I've been reading through a, a book by Fleming Rutledge, who is an American pastor. And in the book, it's a series of her sermons and writings. And this is a, a writing from one of her sermons, or a portion of one of her sermons through Advent. She says, Advent is the season that, when properly understood, does not flinch from the darkness that stalks in all this world. Advent begins in the dark and moves towards the light. But the season should not move too quickly or too confidently, lest we fail to acknowledge the depth of the darkness. Advent bids us to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. The darkness without and the darkness within. God is not afraid of the darkness. The season of Advent invites us with honesty and integrity and difficulty to acknowledge the real darkness in our world and within ourselves and in those spaces to anticipate the coming and the hope of God to look into some of the most desperate and hopeless situations of our world and our lives and to confidently say better things are coming. Better things are coming. Many of you know that here at 10th, we have a, a refugee ministry in a refugee community of over 200 people. People who have come to Canada, many of them leaving their family, all financial stability, their jobs, their country, all behind to come here to Canada, many whom have nothing. And they come here and find themselves in desperate and hopeless situations. And a part of the vision of this refugee ministry is to help to meet them in these places of hopelessness and help to bring God's hope in the spaces of their stories. Mim Wicked is one of the leaders of the refugee group here at 10th. And she shared a story that came from their Thanksgiving meeting on the Thanksgiving long weekend, where they had gathered together on Denman Island, shared a Thanksgiving meal together, and then after the meal, Mim asked each of them to share something that they were grateful for. And Mim here has highlighted one of those stories of a woman who here we are calling Nasima, but we have changed her name for confidentiality. Here's what Mim wrote. We are gathered for the Thanksgiving meal, 30 people stretched out along long tables sitting snugly shoulder to shoulder with a feast of Canadian Afghan food laid before us. The usual turkey stuffing and sweet potatoes, but also spicy eggplant, pomegranate, pomegranate salad, and chai. After we had eaten till we could eat no more, each of us shared something we were grateful for. Every story was profound 
and heartfelt. Nasima stood to speak. A few hours earlier, she had proudly served heaping pots of steamed clams that she had dug up from the beach, dripping with garlic butter, and were delicious. She was grateful for new friends that she had made on the weekend, for the hosts who had opened their doors to strangers, for the freedom to ride a bike on the quiet roads, and in the darkness to safely walk a forest trail to gaze at the millions of bright stars above. A year earlier, she had been captive in her own house. The Taliban had taken over her beloved country, and in the blink of an eye, she had lost the value of her hard-earned degrees, her prestigious career, even the ability to walk alone in the market. She moved from house to house to avoid detection, every day wondering if this would be the day a knock on the door would mean imprisonment, rape, or death. Her evacuation was highly risky, nearly impossible in fact, and only by a series of miracles she escaped to a country that had descended, or escaped from a country that had descended into hopelessness, despair, and deep darkness. And now, here she was, surrounded by friends speaking from a full heart. Her face glowed in the candlelight, her eyes bright with laughter. She had been welcomed into a place of freedom, for her light had broken through darkness. There was indeed much to be thankful for. Like Nasima's story, we see God seeking to meet people in the spaces of their greatest darkness, hopelessness, and despair. And to help to bring them from places of darkness and hopelessness to places of light where they can look into their future and see that better things are coming. A year previous, she had looked into her future and perhaps like Tamar, seen despair and death. And now a year later, in part through what God has done here at 10th Church and through our refugee community, she looks into her future. She sees that better things are coming, that hope has broken through the darkest places of her life. But if we honestly also look at her story too, all the loose ends have not been tied up, have they? She still left her beloved country. Her degrees, the work that she loves, family and friends, she left all those things behind. But God doesn't only work in our stories when all the loose ends are tied up. Instead, he meets us when it feels like things are complex and strange and broken, and even where sin is involved as a part of our stories. That God is not afraid of our darkness. He's not afraid of the complexity of our stories. He doesn't only work when we feel like we have all of our ducks in a row, or when we feel like we deserve him to work into our lives. God works in the most desperate and dark and difficult and hopeless situations of our life, even if they are confusing and don't make sense, to meet us there and to help to bring us into greater places of hope. And that is what we see in Tamar's story. Tamar's story ends with Judah, Tamar's father-in-law and the family, seeing that Tamar is pregnant accusing her and threatening her life. In order to save her own life, Tamar holds up an object that had been given to her as a down payment for the payment that Judah was going to pay for the sex with Tamar. 
And the object that Tamar holds up was Judah's seal. And in doing so, Judah realizes his wrong and says to Tamar and to the family, she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her my son, Sheila. And Tamar's life is saved and Tamar gives birth to two sons, one of whom becomes the great, 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 great grandson or grandfather of Jesus. And we get to the end of the story. And some of you are wondering, really? That's it? All the loose ends and brokenness and sin and confusion of the story is not tied up? There's no moral to the story? There's no one that we can raise up here as a moral exemplar? Really? The good news of Tamar's story is not Tamar. The good news of the story is not Judah. The good news of this story is that God works in dark and broken places. The good news of this story is that we don't have to have our life together for God to acknowledge our hopelessness and help to take us into greater places of hope. God is not afraid of your darkness. God is not afraid of your broken, sinful, complicated stories. He is not afraid of your darkest places. If God can meet Tamar in her, in her darkest, most hopeless space, God can and will meet you too. God is not afraid of your darkness. And this takes us to Jesus. Jesus was born in a dark and broken and hopeless world. And you know what? He really did bring hope through his life, death, and resurrection. We see even during his life, he healed the sick. He raised the dead. He truly brought hope to people who are hopeless. But as we come to the end of the first part of Jesus' story, all the loose ends are not tied up, are they? There is still sin and death in this world. And a part of our invitation in the season of Advent is not just to look forward for Jesus' first arrival, the arrival that happened 2,000 years ago on Christmas morning. It's not to anticipate this upcoming Christmas in around a month's time from now. It's to anticipate also the final coming, the final arrival of Jesus. That as a church, we can stand in some of the darkest places of our world and take a fearless inventory of them and the darkest spaces of our lives and in those places fearlessly declare better things are coming. God is not afraid of your darkest places. God is not afraid of your sin. God is not afraid of your hopelessness, but he seeks to meet you in those darkest, hopeless places and to help to bring the light of his hope into those spaces. God is not afraid of your darkness. God is not afraid of your hopelessness. For some of you, you will experience hope this Advent. You will experience the reality that better things are coming this Advent or next Advent. But for every person, we will experience the fullness of Christ's hope at the final advent. When Christ returns and we're told that he makes all things new, 
that he defeats death and sin and renews the world, raises the dead back to life and bring healing. That even if we do not experience hope and the fullness that better things are to come this Advent or next, we can fearlessly stand in the darkest places of our world and of our lives and declare better things are coming. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but better things will come. Where do you long for hope to break through your story? What are some of the darkest, messy, broken, complex, sinful spaces of your life where you long for hope to break through? Where you long to experience the truth that better things are coming? Where are those spaces for you? We can stand there. We can stand in the darkness because we are a people who can fearlessly declare better things are coming. Better things are coming. Let's pray. Jesus, you see us right now. We don't need to hide from you. You see us. You see our broken and complex stories. You see our sin. You see our failure. You see everything. You see our world that feels like it's on the verge of war and food insecurity. You see the darkness in our world around us. You see those who sleep on the streets. You see the poverty and inequality. You see the darkness. And yet still we can declare better things are coming. Better things are coming for our world and better things are coming for us. Jesus, we anticipate your coming and the bringing of hope in our lives and in this world, whether it comes this Advent or next or in the final Advent, that you promise that better things are coming. And we trust that promise. Better things are coming. Amen.